Imagine driving down a busy highway. In an ideal world, everyone would be driving at the speed limit, and someone who's speeding would be pulled over by the police and taken off the road. Now imagine that a car, even if they were going at speed limit, was flagged to be taken off the road by police. This would result in fewer cars on roads and cars being taken away for unclear reasons. The cars in this scenario are analogous to our red blood cells, and the police are our immune system. Our immune system is designed to remove foreign materials from our body, but occasionally recognizes our own matter as being foreign. This happens in cases of autoimmune diseases, such as an autoimmune hemolytic anemia, whereby red cells are destroyed by the body's immune system. Today, our patient has autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Ward, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Not Too Hot, Not Too Cold. Start with our minute physiology. The normal red blood cell lifespan in adult humans is 110 to 120 days. Normally, red cells at the end of their lifespan are subject to shearing forces, deformations while traveling through capillaries, decreased enzyme function, and oxidative challenges. Red cell death occurs in the spleen. Autoimmune hemolytic anemia results from the body's immune system acting against its own red cell antigens. In warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, IgG antibodies bind to antigens on red cells at a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. IgG-coated red cells are recognized by splenic macrophages, resulting in phagocytosis of the red cell, or removal of portions in the red cell membrane. This is classically described as extravascular hemolysis. Certain IgG subtypes also activate complement, leading to deposition of C3 fragments on the red cell. This can lead to the formation of a membrane attack complex on the red cell surface. In cold autoimmune hemolytic anemia, also known as cold agglutinin disease, IgM antibodies bind to red cells in the cooler peripheral circulation, causing red cell agglutination. IgM activates the complement cascade. This results in extravascular hemolysis. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. You were asked to see a consult in the emergency department for a patient presenting with fatigue and dyspnea on exertion who has a hemoglobin of 80 grams per liter. This patient is diagnosed with anemia, and it is your job to determine the cause for the patient's anemia. The mean corpuscular volume, or MCV, can hint towards the cause for anemia, but is not reliable if the cause for anemia is multifactorial or acute. In any patient with anemia of unknown etiology, a hemolytic anemia should be on your differential. In particular, hemolysis should be considered in patients with rapid onset of symptoms or signs of anemia in the absence of bleeding. In those cases, a detailed past medical history should be taken to determine any underlying autoimmune conditions or malignancies that may be associated with the hemolytic anemia. A history should also focus on any infectious contacts or exposures. This history should also include a sexual history, especially in patients at risk of acquiring HIV or hepatitis. A key component of the history also includes a medication history, focusing on any new medications, such as short-term antibiotics that may have been prescribed as an outpatient. A physical exam may be positive for pallor and jaundice, depending on the degree of anemia and hemolysis. Pallor suggestive of anemia is most commonly seen in the conjunctiva, face, and palms. An abdominal exam may reveal splenomegaly if there is an underlying lymphoproliferative disorder. 
Let's focus on the workup now. Hemolytic anemia is a diagnosis based on various laboratory investigations. This always includes the following. CBC, blood smear, LDH, haptoglobin, bilirubin, reticulocyte count, and direct antiglobulin test, or DAT. In hemolysis, the CBC will show anemia, and the blood smear may show a variety of abnormalities depending on the underlying cause. LDH is nonspecific, but is intracellular in red cells and will be elevated in hemolysis. Bilirubin is a product of the metabolism of the porphyrin ring. Bilirubin is conjugated in the hepatocyte, but when levels overwhelm the hepatocytes, a high unconjugated bilirubin will be detected, such as in the case of active hemolysis. Haptoglobin is a protein that binds to free hemoglobin and will therefore be low in the setting of hemolysis. If the patient's bone marrow is able to appropriately compensate, the reticulocyte count will be elevated in an attempt of the bone marrow to rapidly replenish the red cell stores. The DAT will be positive in autoimmune hemolytic anemia. In warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, the DAT is likely to be positive for IgG and often for C3. The blood film will usually show spherocytes. In cold agglutinin disease, the DAT will only be positive for C3. In cold agglutinin disease, agglutination of red cells may be seen in the lab at low temperatures and will resolve when the sample is warmed. Approximately 50% of cases of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia are primary. However, 50% are associated with other disorders. These include autoimmune diseases such as lupus, scleroderma, or rheumatoid arthritis. It may also be associated with infections such as HIV, EBV, hepatitis C, or with immunodeficiency syndromes. Warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia may also be associated with various lymphoproliferative diseases. Further investigations should be undertaken to determine if there is an underlying disorder associated with the finding of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Medications such as penicillins, cephalosporins, methyldopa, and fludarabine are all associated with warm hemolytic anemia. Cold agglutinin disease can similarly be primary or secondary. The secondary form, known as cold agglutinin syndrome, is frequently associated with mycoplasma pneumoniae infections, EBV infection, and is often seen in the setting of aggressive lymphoma. Cold agglutinin syndrome may also be seen in rheumatological conditions such as lupus. Let's touch briefly on the management. The initial management of a patient with suspected autoimmune hemolytic anemia depends on the severity of the anemia. In general, if the hemoglobin is less than 70 grams per liter, the patient has an indication for a higher hemoglobin level, or the patient is symptomatic, the patient should receive a blood transfusion. In the setting of cold agglutinin disease, the patient should be warmed and the blood should be transfused using a blood warmer. In any patient with hemolysis, there is a greater demand for erythropoiesis and folate, and folic acid supplementation should be provided. In autoimmune hemolytic anemia secondary to an underlying disorder, the best practice is to treat the underlying condition. In primary autoimmune hemolytic anemia, the first-line treatment has been glucocorticoid therapy, typically prednisone at a dose of 1 mg per kilogram, with an appropriate taper based on response. Recent evidence has suggested that agents directed against B cells, such as rituximab, are effective in management of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Okay, let's finish with our medicine minute. 
The Reha study, published in the American Journal of Hematology in 2016, was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that examined the efficacy and safety of using rituximab in the management of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Patients were enrolled in the study if they had received corticosteroids for less than six weeks. All patients were given prednisone, and the intervention was the addition of rituximab compared to placebo. Although this study only included 32 patients and followed 27 patients for a year, the overall response rate at one year was 75% for patients given rituximab and prednisone, compared to 31% with prednisone alone. There was a higher rate of complete remission with the use of rituximab, which was sustained at two years after treatment. As with any immunosuppressive medication, there were severe infections that developed, but did not differ significantly between the control and intervention groups. Overall, this study showed that rituximab, in addition to prednisone, may be safe and effective in the management of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. However, at the moment, the standard frontline therapy is glucocorticoids alone, with rituximab and splenectomy reserved as second-line therapies for those with relapsed or refractory disease. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Not Too Hot, Not Too Cold. This episode was written by Dr. Adam Suleiman, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Eric Tang, hematologist, and Dr. Yuna Lee, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali. Music by Lakshmi Santhamoa. As always, don't forget to head to our website, www.theinternetwork.com, for associated resources and our infographic. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.